Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have one, you can grab a black pew Bible that's probably in front of you or maybe underneath you and turn to page 61 in those black pew Bibles and you will find our passage for this morning. And if you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 20, we're going to look at verse 3 specifically, but this morning I want to read beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, in our times of electric cars and kind of self-driving cars, you might have heard a a story, uh, this silly story, about some passengers on an airplane. I wonder if you've heard it before. It's kind of silly. But the airplane takes off, and a few minutes after takeoff, the following message is heard over the intercom of the plane. It says, Welcome to Flight 324. This is a pilotless aircraft. The takeoff has been managed by a sophisticated computerized management system, which will control the aircraft through the flight and the landing. Please relax and enjoy the flight. Be assured that the system has been tested and approved. Nothing can go wrong. Tested and approved. Nothing can go wrong. Tested and approved. Nothing can go wrong. It's kind of a silly story, but it is a A parable, isn't it, of maybe how we might view the world that we live in. Uh, When we look at our world, we, we think evidently, we look out at the world and we think that something has gone wrong with the world. What kind of world are we in? We are in a world of plagues. We are in a world of war. Uh, We are in a world which where protesters are being sentenced to death. We are in a world where it is full of brutality and racial hatred. It has all the appearance of a pilotless world. But that is not how the Bible understands things. The Bible teaches that this is not a world without a pilot. Rather, it is a world in which the passengers are in mutiny. There is a pilot But the plane is full of men and women, young boys, young girls, trying to to grab at the controls themselves. And the chaos will continue until we fully acknowledge that there is one God, that there is a pilot, and we must submit to him. In many ways, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, 
the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, speaks to this truth. And that will be my appeal to you from this pulpit this morning. That you may see that there is one true God and we ought to love him. If you haven't been with us through the exposition of the book of Exodus, chapter 20 is where God speaks to Israel as they are gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God has already rescued Israel out of Egypt. He's rescued them through the ten plagues. God has displayed himself as powerful through those ten plagues. Israel has seen God at work as he parted the Red Sea and as they crossed on dry land and as they traveled through the wilderness. And now they've come to the foot of Mount Sinai. They've been rescued, welcomed into the family of God, and God now gives them his household rules. As we talked about last week, God reveals to them the boundaries of what it means to live freely as God's people. Uh, These laws are not just a random collection of laws. They are not crowdsourced on the internet. Though they reflect his divine character, the the rules reveal something about the rule maker. Uh, They speak to the attributes of the Almighty. And the very first commandment he gives to his people is this. You shall have no other gods before me. And there's a reason this is the first commandment. Now, you would think that maybe God, when he's giving these Ten Commandments, he would start somewhere else. Uh, Maybe start with the Sixth Commandment. You know, that sounds like a good one. We're dealing a lot with crime these days. You shall not murder seems like a good one that we should start with. Crime is on the rise, and people have questions about abortion. People have questions about euthanasia. Or why not start with the Seventh Commandment? You shall not commit adultery. I mean, that's a spicy one, isn't it? Uh, maybe start with that one, get people hooked, you know, talk about sex, and, and then we can go on, from to the, go on to the other commandments. So why is this the first commandment? It's not because it's better than all the other commandments, but because it is foundational beneath all the other commandments. Devotion to God is the ground for any moral code. This is what Jesus thought. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. someone asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? And what does he say? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The commandment is foundational to all the others. So what does it look like to obey this commandment? What are some implications of this commandment? What does it look like to love the one true God? Three implications that I have for you this morning. And the first is this. You must love God truly. You must love God truly. Uh, Kevin DeYoung writes that if our faith is to be a genuine Christian faith, it must be more than faith in faith. 
In other words, the most important aspects of our faith is not how hard we believe, but whom we believe. You can be sincere in what you believe, but you can be sincerely wrong. Uh, You might have good intentions and zeal or even fervor, but to direct those towards wrong things or the wrong person is no saving faith at all. A friend of mine once said, in archery, it doesn't matter how precisely you shoot your arrow if you're facing the wrong direction. And we are living in a time when the worship of false gods abound. Uh, we might not have the false gods that Israel had to deal with, like Ashtaroth or Baal or Molech. But we still have Allah and Buddha and Brahma and all these various tribal deities. And the command here is that you must worship the true God. Now, if you're here this morning, my guess is that many of you are not tempted in that direction to worship God false gods. Yet I fear that many of us are tempted to dismantle, or the word today is deconstruct God into how we would want him to be. Our thoughts can drift, and somehow we can assume that our human rationality, our judgment, our sense of propriety needs to somehow correct the misinformation that's in this Bible about when it tells us about who God is and what he's like. After all, the Bible, I mean, this is an outdated, outmoded old book, isn't it? It's from an ancient culture. In our times, we need fresh thinking. We need a God that's going to be more helpful. We need a God who's going to be more relevant. We need a God who is going to be more open. We need an open God. We want God to fit in our culture, and we want to remake God in our image. Someone once said, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. Uh, Pastor Mark Dever once told a story about a doctoral seminar he gave about God. And after he was done, a man named Bill, I, I think his name was probably changed for his sake, but stood up politely and said, I think of God rather differently. And for several minutes, Bill painted a picture of God. And he said, I'd like to think of God as being wise, but not meddling. I'd like to think of God as being compassionate, but not overpowering, resourceful, but never interrupting. That's how I'd like to think about God. In response, Mark Dever, who I would say is not really well known for his compassion, uh, said, Bill, thank you for telling us so much about yourself, uh, but we're here to study about God. But that is what we are prone to do, isn't it? We want to redefine what God is like. We want, to, we want a God, and we would say, God would never say this about homosexuality. God would never say this about men's and women's roles. Church, this isn't to say that we shouldn't search the scriptures. This isn't to say we shouldn't examine whether cultural influences have distorted or redefined what we think about God in unbiblical and harmful ways. But this is a call for us here to worship God truly. 
If your God never has any sharp edges, if your God never offends, never makes you feel uncomfortable, if your God never challenges your preconceived notions and values and priorities, if God is simply the sprinkle that you put on top of your cupcake, then it might be that this God that you love is not the true God, but a God of your own creation, your own imagination. Second, this command is not only a call for us to love God truly, but it is, second, a call for us to love God exclusively. When the commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me, it's not saying, God is not saying, look, you know, I know there are a lot of other gods out there, and I just want you to have me, Yahweh, to be the number one God, and you can have all these other gods Go ahead and worship those other ones. Just make sure I'm number one, that I'm the top dog in the pantheon of all the gods. The phrase before me is literally before my face. God is saying, get that out of my face. It's a statement of monotheism, a belief in one God. And the rest of Scripture testifies that God is the one God because there are no other gods. Uh, Isaiah 44, 6 says, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no other God. And in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 8, Paul writes, an idol or a false god has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So this commandment then is for complete loyalty. There are no dual citizenships in the kingdom of heaven. God commands a singular allegiance. And throughout the Bible, the consistent theme is that God's people must reject a both-and approach to spirituality. That's not to say that every single doctrine of the Christian faith is necessarily uh, an either-or, but on the foundational points of who God is and who you belong to, we do not have a both-and religion. The very first verse of the Bible says what? In Genesis 1.1. In the beginning... God. In other words, there was nothing else, just the one true God. One author writes, monotheism is not just the first command, it's the Bible's first thought. When Moses is at the burning bush, Moses asks God, who will I say sent me? And how does God answer? He says, I am. And then nothing else after. There's this deafening silence after that. Because it's saying God is self-existent, uncreated, the origin of all things. He is the one true God. Even Jesus says in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You know, one of the first lessons parents try to teach their children is how to share. You know, moms and dads constantly remind their children, oh, share, remember to share, share your toys, 
Maybe you say share your food. Maybe you say share your space. You have to share is what parents like to say. But there are some things that are not meant to be shared. We can think of a lot of things. Gummy bears. One gummy bear is not meant to be shared. To bite off half of it and give it to the other is gross. Okay? A unicycle is not meant to be shared. You don't share your answers on a test with others. And when it comes to our loyalty, our love, God says, I will not share my glory with another. You may not have another God instead of me, alongside of me, or in addition to me. I will brook no rival. Because true biblical faith is an either-or proposition. Now, some of us might object. Now, you know, that sounds just so, so exclusive, God. Why are you so exclusive, so narrow, so intolerant? But I would argue that this rigid exclusivity points to the goodness of God, doesn't it? It's good because it points to God's loyal love for his people. God says in, in, in chapter 20, he says, you are mine. He says, I've rescued you out. I've brought you out. I am the Lord, your God, and you are mine. He's speaking in covenant marriage kind of terms. You cannot have a both-end relationship with your spouse, at least not for very long. Husbands, you come home and you say to your wife, hey, you know, I just want to let you know I love you. You're my first wife, but, you know, let me introduce you to somebody else. And she's beautiful also, and I'm going to start spending some time with her, but, you know, you're still number one. Now, what's going to happen? Well, first, your wife is going to pour her drink into your face. And then she's going to slap you and she's going to say, it's either me or her. You have to put her away or you'll never see me again. And we would never say, that's so intolerant. She has every right to be a jealous wife, just as God has every right to be a jealous God. We must love love God exclusively. This is talking about a relationship. It's a good thing. And this truth is perhaps what is most threatening to most of us. Because church, beloved, you might tell yourself that you're doing fine because this past week you haven't bowed down to any totem pole or you haven't set up for yourself any household shrines. But idolatry is a standing problem for you and me. Because the great struggle of the Christian church is that of divided loyalties. Is that we want to worship God and something else. We affirm verbally, or maybe even intellectually, but practically, we're polytheists, aren't we? We worship more than one God. We want to be Christians and at the same time walk in comfort and agreement with the unbelieving world and its culture. Our idolatry is that both-and arrangement. I need God and I need whatever it is. I need God and I need amazing vacations. I need God and I need good health. I need God and I need my children to be successful. I need God and I need this much money in the bank to feel calm. 
We assume that idolatry is a thing of the past, but as the past several years has shown, it is alive and kicking because idolatry is anything loved more than God, desired more than God, treasured and trusted more than God. And so we say, oh, I want God and country. What? I want God and I want face masks or whatever. I want God and my political party. I want God and I want my truth. So ask yourself, what do you love? What or who do you trust? When your mind is free to roam, what do you think about? Who do you think about? How do you spend your money? What do you get excited about? When your emotions fluctuate, why? Why does that happen? Reformer Martin Luther said, whatever thy heart clings to and relies upon, that is properly thy God. Puritan Thomas Watson said, to trust in anything more than God is to make it a God. Let me put the question another way. Ask yourself, what is it, if it happened, would cause you to doubt your faith? That's not to say that there are legitimate times when you have doubt. I'm not saying you're a horrible Christian just because sometimes you have doubts. But if you want to pinpoint what you're adding to your love and worship of God, you can trace it down to what is my deal breaker. Because good things can make the most insidious idols. Perhaps it's a relationship or it's a career. Maybe it's even a good thing like ministry in the church, how you're perceived in the church. Brothers and sisters, love or money, or success, or power, or whatever it is, these are what Tim Keller has so famously said, these are counterfeit gods. They will fail you because they cannot bear up. They cannot possibly bear up. They're not meant to bear up the weight of all your soul needs. Only the one true God can do that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The first command calls us to love God truly. Second, it calls us to love God exclusively. Third and finally, it calls us to love Christ ultimately. As we'll see as we go through the Ten Commandments, we'll see that the first commandment, like the others, is transformed by the coming of Christ. Not disposed, but transposed. Meaning, uh, Kevin DeYoung puts it this way, he writes that with the coming of Christ, this commandment has been modulated to a hierarchy. Uh, With the coming of Christ, the first commandment can only be obeyed by loving and worshiping Jesus. Why? Because he is God, and all allegiance and loyalty is to be afforded to him. Jesus says in John 10, I and the Father are one. And then in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. These are amazing claims. 
scandalous claims. The book of Hebrews declares that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And this is why the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is why Jesus himself demands an exclusive love to himself. He writes in Matthew 10, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, let me tell you that there is good news. Because when it comes to this first commandment that you're, you're hearing, you shall have no other gods before me, you might be thinking, okay, I, I get it. It's just one verse. I can do better. I'll try harder. Tie up my laces tighter. Maybe I'll do some penance for my past. And then I'll be okay. But keeping this commandment is not how you enter into the kingdom of heaven. Others of you might be thinking, I get that I haven't kept this commandment perfectly. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. But you're completely missing out on what this commandment is saying. This commandment is not about your horizontal relationships. This commandment is not about how you compare with other people. This commandment is about how your relationship is with God. How you've treated him. This commandment essentially says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your strength, all your might. And the reality is that no one has ever loved God that way. This is a commandment that we love God with not just part of our hearts, but all of our hearts. Our affection is to be total and complete. You have to be completely self-denying. To qualify for eternal life, you are to trust God perfectly with perfect devotion, perfect fellowship, perfect humility, perfect obedience, perfect hatred of sin, perfect rejection of evil, perfect love for others, and a perfect longing for God's presence. And if you just take one honest moment to look at your own lives, you would probably agree with me and say, I have never done that even for five minutes of my life. Again, to quote Martin Luther, he said that if this is the great commandment, then the violation of that commandment would have to make this the greatest transgression. Friend, this law exposes you. You have not loved the one true God as you should. Maybe you've ignored him. You've decided to go your own way. You've decided to fight for control over the plane. And for that, not only have you made your life a mess, but you are under the wrath and judgment of God. But do you also see in this commandment God's kindness towards you? Because God is saying, you shall have no other gods beside me because you need no other gods. 
I am enough for you. I am sufficient. And no other gods can save. So look to me. And God demonstrates his love for us by becoming a man in Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect life. He is the only man to have obeyed this commandment perfectly. He died on the cross, and he fulfilled this law himself on that cross. He took on himself the punishment for all other lawbreakers so that whoever would trust in him would be set free from the punishment of God and entered into the family of God. He rose again, Jesus rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and God's wrath has been exhausted. And now he is calling you today, right now, he is calling you to turn from your sins and to trust in Christ alone for forgiveness and joy. You see, in a moment, we're going to have three individuals get baptized Uh, These three individuals, they're not getting baptized because they love God as they should. But because they've turned from themselves and trusted in the one that has. Their baptism is a pledge of allegiance. Showing that they need Christ. That they have been united to Christ by faith. And that they love Christ and treasure him. That is what you will be witness to this morning. And so I plead with you, if you do not yet know Christ, that today might be the day of your salvation. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks and praise to you because you are the one true God. We pray for our life together as a church family that we would keep ourselves from idols as the Apostle John tells us. We ask that you would persevere us and grow in in us an increasing love and affection for Christ ultimately. And we ask and plead that we would bear witness to this watching world as a church that there is no other God, no other name for salvation than Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.